High school is that special time of life where you have no idea what's important. The things that are extremely important to you in high school tend to not be the things that are obviously important to you. Later on, once you gain some perspective and once that crucible of social viewing morphs into something altogether different, I wish it was all good news. Of course, our self-doubt doesn't go away. It just changes forms and we focus on different things. In high school, like the arc of a lot of guys and women in high school, it's very familiar that they didn't grow very fast or weren't very beautiful then and then, then blossomed. That happens to probably 80% of people, except for those who are, are a little more precocious. One might say lucky. I'd be curious to compare the two sets of individuals and see how those things set them up for life. Although it's tempting to assume that the beauty queen and the high school quarterback generally don't succeed in some sort of like turn of events that's of a movie quality. I don't think there's any reason to believe that that's necessarily the case. Hockey players and studies of their birth ages show that those who are born at certain periods and are able to play more competitively against the field end up doing better and becoming professionals with higher frequency. I think that was in a Malcolm Gladwell book, perhaps. So. It's not that the person who has to struggle more always prevails, although it's nice to imagine that. When I was in high school, familiar to that trope, I was not very tall, and I had really skinny limbs. In fact, my whole body was skinny. I remember frequently throughout your life, <laughs> if you hear certain remarks about your body you really take that to heart even if it's not really that harmful i think it's just natural as a human being to start to inwardly focus and think about what's wrong with you so people throughout my life adults when i was little and peers as they got into middle school high school would ask me things like are you sure you're eating enough are you getting enough food at home and i, I think some adults were probably actually serious because, you know, when I was at the pool, like, you know, one of those kids where you can see every rib in extreme detail. In high school, I remember a soccer teammate of mine. Actually, he was, he, he was a friend, good guy, but just a lot more big than me. Pretty brash, joked around a lot. And sometimes he would sort of wrap one hand around my wrist to sort of like show how skinny I was that he could connect all the way around my wrist. Now, I'm not sure that events like that held me back necessarily. I was always one to, when getting knocked down, get back up again. And I was known for that on the seventh grade football field at recess. And uh, it became a reputation that I was proud of even though I was smaller than all the other guys, that I would try harder and always get back up again. 
So by no means am I saying I've had a hard life or that it held me back, but it took some time for me to grow beyond that impression as just the skinny kid and mentally evolve in the right way. There's a band that talks a lot about the mind and personality and what it's like to be a teenager. In fact, I think their first real hit talks exactly about what it's like to be that high schooler. It's a band called Radiohead. The song, aptly titled, was Creep. I created my first YouTube video recently. I will include it in the notes. The reason I mentioned this is because it was all about how to properly throw your Alexa device. I got really pissed at my Amazon Echo or Alexa. Amazon Echo being sort of the skin <laughs> through which the Skynet brain of Alexa projects itself. I got pissed one day. I lost it. I wasn't as mature as I should have been. And I threw Alexa really hard at the other side of the room. I wasn't really aiming at anything, which was pretty stupid because I got to pride myself on my aim and motor control, things like that. Having been in the SEAL teams and played sports all my life, didn't aim at anything. And so I ended up hitting the window. Thank God I didn't break it. Magically, I didn't break Alexa, well, the Echo, the device, or the window. AI can piss us off sometimes. That machine brain. I wonder, though, what are we doing with our own machine inside our heads? How do we fix the bugs that are inside our head? By trade, after the SEAL teams and after having done a few other varied things, like try to recover Qaddafi's billions for a little bit. That didn't work out because I'd be uh, living a life of a little more luxury than I am now. But since then, I have been a product manager by trade. And one thing that software engineers and product managers are all too familiar with are bugs. Those errors in the code or in the product that weren't intended and just flew in there, as in the earliest days of computers. That's where the term really comes from, actual bugs in, I believe it would be the vacuum tubes at that time. Through various places, and especially one of the fashion startups, <laughs> I've been at two fashion startups somehow, despite no real penchant for fashion. I've just found my way there. At one of the more recent ones, a few years ago, we went through a ton of uncovering of such bugs. How do you go about doing that? You audit the code. You go through it. You try and measure the impact of any certain error. Sometimes it's theoretical. Sometimes you can actually measure the impact. Look at the way the data is stored. Sometimes in your database, there are things that are labeled in duplicate ways or in misleading ways. How does our brain file those things away like the software does? Are we filing things in the right places? 
Do we have the right connections? Is our code connected properly? It's a lot easier to do that with software where you can see the code, where you can see what it's doing for the most part, not in every type of machine learning in a neural network. A lot of times that is hard or impossible to actually see what's going on. And of course, we talk about a neural network. Neural references our own brain and the opacity with which looking into our brain is, is a real thing, that it's very hard. Uh, same thing for, for that neural network. When we're dealing with software, a lot of times a familiar question comes up. Is that a feature or a bug? This is especially true of somebody else's software where it's not yours. Additionally, many times in products, digital products, users will use your software in ways that you don't expect. And if you leave the software a certain way where there's an error in it, users might find creative ways to take advantage of it or work around it so that it creates something they enjoy, a feature and not a bug. But when you're dealing with a neural network, how do you tell if something is a feature or a bug? And when you are the user of the neural network as well as its creator, the problem becomes even harder. Okay, computer, I want full manual control now. You got it, said the computer. If you haven't read the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson, you definitely owe it to yourself to do so. I'm not a huge biography guy. I love studying about great people and great works, but a lot of times I don't make enough time for biographies the way that I should, probably because they're often either more in the entertainment genre than actually information, which isn't a bad thing. Entertainment can be a good thing, especially if we're consuming some information in the meantime, maybe unknowingly. Or they delve into so many useless details or hero worship that I don't spend time doing it. But the Walter Isaacson does a great job, and that biography of Steve Jobs is amazing. Of course, he goes into a lot of detail about what everyone already knows, which is Steve Jobs had some real difficult traits in his personality. He was known, of course, for dismissing other people's work below him at Apple as not meeting a bar with some expletives thrown in from time to time. There's a, an Amazon leadership principle called insist on the highest standards. So it brings up the question whether that trait of Steve Jobs was really a problem, an error, or a feature, something critical to his personality to ensure his success and that of his team. We're all also familiar with the tortured artist archetype or the fact that comedians might be depressed and have had a tough time. I remember there's a more than one stand-up comedian that I've seen specials of on Netflix, especially one British one. I need to find the name and include it in the show notes who <laughs> makes 
a joke has a whole bit about how their parents were very normal and encouraging and he wanted a traumatic upbringing and he wanted to be a rebel and keep pushing the bounds of whatever, smoking, drinking, having sex. And his mom just dealt with it as, okay, you're into that now. Great. And so he never got the trauma that would have made him a really great comedian. I can think of numerous qualities in myself, not to be self-indulgent here, but in the spirit of exploring this further, I can think of things like impatience or sometimes laziness. We probably all have that to a little bit, but I get really frustrated when there are procedures, processes, apps that just don't work in the most efficient manner. And that helps me come up with new ideas about how to solve a problem or to identify a problem that even needs to be solved in the first place. I'm pretty curious and I have a lot of decisiveness and maybe that decisiveness borders on arrogance or crosses that line sometimes, but maybe not. I have a high risk tolerance, as you might expect, having come from the SEAL teams, been a trader on Wall Street for a little bit. Meanwhile, other people might be more analytical. That could be a great thing. When does it become analysis paralysis versus something that is really their strength? Someone may have a chip on their shoulder. There are lots of stories of historical figures, successful entrepreneurs who had that chip on their shoulder. So how do you know what's a feature and what's a bug? It's pretty easy, perhaps, to see people who destroyed their lives through whatever, alcohol, drugs, greed, obsessive seeking of fame. Charles Bukowski is cited often by creatives, by Mark Maron's book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, which we've referred to here a lot on the show. But that guy wasn't living a stellar life by all accounts. So what of those qualities of his were features or bugs? Was the whole thing just doomed due to some fatal flaw in his inner code? My God, dude, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. Oh, don't I worry. I thought I was gonna have to call 911 or something. Yeah, no, 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 no more, but do, oh. do you need water? No, I don't need any water, but I gotta get into that bathtub. Bathtub. So if you could carry me over there. Yeah, I can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? Physically, I can do that, but I'm not gonna carry your naked into the tub. I mean, you got a curtain on. You can't even lift me up and take me to the tub. You know what? I'll drag you there, but I'm not gonna cradle you like a newborn, okay? I'm not gonna do that. Okay, you're gonna drag me there? Yeah. Once you drag me there, you're gonna have to lift me up into the tub anyway. So just grab me and get it over Fine. with. Radiohead's frontman and key creative leader, Tom York, said in an interview that it took him a little while to figure out why people related to his music. He figured everyone's like me, or alternatively, everyone could be very different in either of those scenarios. Why? Does his music resonate so much with a bunch of people? And he tried a lot of different things in his early writing and then figured out what every writer probably figures out at some point, or they quit or fail utterly, is that the vulnerable parts of him, 
that before he didn't want to show were the parts that really resonated. And I'd say there's no vulnerability without flaws, right? So by being vulnerable, do these flaws become features? I mean, not if you're working middle management in Inatech. Being vulnerable isn't going to help you there very much. It's probably not going to help your team that much. It's not to say you shouldn't do it as a leader or as a human in that work environment. But obviously, an artist can benefit more from that vulnerability. They're able to pull that cheap trick of turning a flaw into a feature. There's that John Legend song where he talks about your perfect imperfections in all of me. I really have always loved that phrase. Going back to things that have stuck with me in terms of my own experience of imperfection myself, talked about being super skinny for most of my, or all of my childhood and didn't really start growing until the middle of college like a lot of people. I've got a back that kind of resembles my grandfather on my mom's side, where it's a little rounded at the top and a lot broader than my waist. And I'm not saying I have a lot of hangups about it, but I never would have thought it was a feature. But in reality, it enabled me to be a lot stronger than it might appear, given how my limbs are when I eventually reach the SEAL teams and have done other things. And to my surprise, have gotten compliments from the opposite sex as it's one of my best features. I mean, I didn't know people were into backs, but okay, I'll take it. In an interview with Rookie Magazine, or maybe it's Rookie Online, Rookie.com, something like that, Tom York gave an interview along with producer Nigel Godrich that I guess was aimed at teenagers, and he tells a story about his eye. I think it's his left eye, where he had to get surgery on it growing up to open it. And anyone who has seen him live knows that he can't really open that eye very much. And when he sings, he kind of sings, and the way he shakes his head with the eye that's basically almost closed on one side strikes people as odd the first time they see it or every time. And he tells the story where he says, when I was your age, I was convinced that girls would think that was really not nice at all. I worked in this pub and this old woman, she was so funny. She used to come in all the time. And she was the first person who really said to me, it's the nicest thing about you. taste 
of the song Electioneering off of Radiohead's OK Computer album. Granted, that was a South Korean band covering it. I think they do a pretty great job. I'll link in the show notes. Give them some support. The OK Computer album is cited by many as one of the best albums of all time. It could be my favorite album. It was an incredible departure for the band and for rock music generally from where it had been before. Alternative and Nirvana had waned, and then there was Britpop, and then nothing clear really filled the void besides boy bands, I think. Radiohead's previous albums, I think Pablo Honey and The Benz, were quite introspective and emotional and personal. Radiohead was more sci-fi. I think the band is quoted as saying they actually wanted to be more upbeat than the previous albums. I've got to confess, even though OK Computer, like I said, may be my favorite album of all time, it's at least in the top five for sure. Even though that is the case, I actually find the album extremely depressing, which is why I can't listen to it all the time. It's very dystopian. And even though it talks a lot about technology and futurism, it paints a very bleak picture. In the event that you have never listened to this album, I highly recommend it. Each song is amazing, and the entire album is knit together front to back in an amazing way. So a great place to do this is with this YouTube video that I'll include in the show notes. It's called Old Guy Listens to Radiohead OK Computer for the First Time. And you can see him reacting to the album it's by something called a channel called VJ Pirate Radio. And he's very insightful musically, but the guy is also personally reacting to it. And he even breaks down to tears at one point. And whether you appreciate Radiohead or not, it's a good way probably to listen to that album for the first time. That Phil you heard earlier in today's episode was a clip from the audiobook version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. And if you caught it, the Radiohead album, OK Computer, is an homage directly to the Douglas Adams work. How can we get our own computers to relinquish control? How can we take full manual control? If our mind is a computer, we should be able to take control of it. But who is this we who's going to take control of the overall system? We're embedded in the system. And if our self is flexible and our self can change over time, who we are can change over time, then even if we can take apart this self from the rest of the system, who is it really who is taking control and creating that next self? 
I remember learning at, I think it was the Naval Academy and systems engineering that either a router is the only machine that can create itself, or maybe it's a CNC machine is the only machine that can create itself. I don't think it's a CNC machine because I think that there's a whole bunch of electronic parts and <laughs> computer systems there that might require more than that machine alone. Maybe I'm wrong. I've never used a CNC machine. It sounds like they're pretty awesome. I was always fascinated, though, by the idea that a machine could create itself, just like humans can create others. Supposedly, Rene Descartes posed to, maybe it was the Queen of Sweden, the idea that humans could be viewed as machines. And apparently, she responded by looking at the clock on the wall and saying, commanded to produce offspring. It's pretty amazing humor from said queen. In our case, as the machine, not necessarily our bodies, but if we talk about our mind, we're the creator of the software, like I said, but we're also the consumer of it. If you go tomorrow and you watch a bunch of TED Talks and you meditate and you do this for a couple months, you will start to see changes. Many of you have already been doing these kinds of things and have seen the changes yourself. And this is more accepted and more celebrated in our society today, which is amazing because even five years ago, there wasn't this much acceptance of the flexibility of who we are and the mind and, and how we can succeed and how we can see ourselves, how we can relate to people. That's pretty amazing. That's immensely empowering. If we create our own software, though, what does that mean for us? And how does that happen? I highly recommend reading anything by Ray Kurzweil. Or is it Kurzweil? He writes about how to create a brain out of computers and how the brain is essentially indistinguishable from a computer. I know I've said that in a few episodes here on The Warrior Poet without really explaining it too much. If you don't believe me, if you still don't agree, read Ray Kurzweil. If we create our own software, essentially we've got this substrate of our brain. I envision the cells like a school of fish. There's some aquariums. I love aquariums or aquaria, aquarier. I'm going with Aquaria. <laughs> I love Aquaria. I love fish. I probably could have been a marine biologist in a parallel life. Jacques Cousteau or, or Steve Zissou, maybe. Some Aquaria. <laughs> okay, I'll go back to aquariums. Some aquariums have these simulations where you can control what the rules are for a school of fish. Schools of fish, swarms of bees, flocks of birds. They follow specific rules amongst the population, and that's how they go together wherever they are going. There may be some leaders in some species, but it's kind of a hive mind. And when you go to these aquariums and you set the rules yourself, you see that the behavior of the population in this swarm or school differs substantially. I envision 
the cells of our brain, acting like the individual fish. The individual fish can kind of go where they like, but not really. It's set by rules for the neurons, the fish around them, perhaps. Depending on what the other fish do, that influences that one neuron, but it also influences the other neurons. So the school is this animal of its own that has a mind, but is reined in by itself. And it's anchored to the past. It's anchored to its starting point. Where it goes is path dependent. And there's some randomness in there within the school, within our neurons, within each individual one that kind of perturbs the direction of the population. And all these perturbations, all these changes, all these variations amongst the individual components influence the school. And so the randomness maybe in the concepts within our brain, maybe it's not neurons, it's probably groups of neurons. There's some randomness there chemically and electrically that helps move our brain to another state. As I was preparing for this episode, I saw that my thoughts about the school of fish going wherever they want ends up tying back nicely to some thoughts of great mathematicians a long time ago, maybe middle of the 20th century. So that made me, that made me feel really good when the concept that I came up with in a few minutes matched up well with the likes of Freeman Dyson and von Neumann. I don't know von Neumann's name. I, I feel like he's the only von Neumann that people are going to remember. <laughs> By the way, if you want to sound both smart and douchey, just go around name dropping mathematicians. Uh, and obviously I'm not claiming to be a mathematical genius by any means, but the point here is that we still arrive back by a circuitous route back to the age old philosophical questions that have troubled humans for a long time. The notion of what is self, what is the mind for a long time? There was this mind brain dilemma or debate. Was there a difference between the mind and the brain? I think a lot of people are clear on that now. But we still are troubled by who we are and how we become who we are. And even though I've taken us on this path through schools of fish and software in the brain, we know about the biology, we end back at the same questions, despite... <laughs> perhaps a lot more effort. There's a character called Marvin, the paranoid android in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it's one of, if not the most highly celebrated songs of the Radiohead OK Computer album, Paranoid Android. Marvin is an incredibly intelligent computer, but he's also depressed. He's been programmed to have a human-like personality. And so in an effort to make him more like humans, he's been given the proclivity towards depression. And what makes it worse is, despite being so smart, he often has to do very menial tasks like open doors, bring food, show hostages or guests on 
the ship heart of gold to wherever they need to go. Depression was designed as a feature, actually, by the creators in the book. Though it's more like a bug to the people around Marvin and to Marvin itself. It's unclear, I think, at least by my memory of the book, whether Marvin's personality could evolve, whether he could repair himself, whether Marvin just needed to meditate and see a therapist. I don't think it was really that way as I read it. It was kind of fixed. His personality was a program by itself that fit into the overall scheme that was Marvin the android. For ourselves, in a way, our, our school of fish, our neurons, they can go places and we can take them there. But if the fish go where they like, essentially, if that school has rules that were baked in at our birth, then does anyone really have full manual control? Now's the time of that program where every person in Android will, unfortunately, get all the way wet. Footnote number one. Obviously, there are some ethical issues related to who's really in control for criminal justice and civil law. If our brains evolve from this inception point in a way that no sort of God created agent can control, then what does it really mean? Who's really in control? All of law rests on the idea that we're in control of our actions and decisions. We all know the kinds of criminal defenses by violent offenders that offend all of us as good standing citizens and caring about humanity. We easily dismiss those. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. We should hold people accountable for sure in the justice system. But law is based more on practicality than principle. Sometimes it might make sense to blame and hold accountable other parties who were involved in the nurture of that violent individual as well. It's just we can't measure the degree of that influence in a way that causally connects that other agent to the crime, unfortunately. Footnote number two, there was a fill of Chips Patrol earlier. I don't know about you, but I thought the movie Chips Patrol was really good on its own. And it may bring up a good drinking debate about whether the original Chips Patrol TV show was better than the movie or not. It's unclear. I think they both have redeemable qualities. I think the paunch of, God, what was that guy's name? Michael Pena. Michael Pena. Love Michael Pena in almost any movie. Michael Pena's paunch was just as good as Eric Estrada. Maybe, maybe better. At least funnier. And Dak Shepard was great in it as well. I am looking now. It looks like he actually wrote it and directed it. So uh, very impressive. I've come to really appreciate how prolific and impactful Dax Shepard 
is lately, despite really not even knowing his name a year ago. Footnote number three. God, math would be a lot cooler and a lot more kids would study it if they introduced the interesting stuff you could do with math to people at a younger age. They waste our times. They, the big they. I'm creating some sort of unnamed enemy here. But society and the education system, they bore kids to death with mathematical concepts instead of actually engaging them. And kids learn the same stuff over and over and go too slowly to advance concepts for no real reason. My son was asking me, the other day about calculus or something and saying, you know, he couldn't learn that for several years. And it's been a little while since I've done some calculus, but I don't recall there being much of anything before that that would prevent you from learning calculus. The hardest part of calculus is the concepts, understanding what a derivative really means in reality, understanding what the rate of a rate of change is. And that's a pretty cool concept once you can grab a hold of it. And you don't even need to know the algorithms to perform, you know, answers to questions on a test to really appreciate and use that overall lesson of what it means to take rates of change and then rates of change on that rate of change, things like that. Perhaps the issue is that math just attracts too many people with dull personalities, people who can't get excited about other things, maybe because they have some degree of control over it, maybe because they're not creative people, maybe because they're not emotional people. They just get drawn to this one thing that they can do. Meanwhile, the most successful mathematicians, I think, actually have really uh, lively personalities and are, can be really engaging people. The, at the lower levels, lower meaning sort of education system, drilling it into students and wrapping them on the knuckles when they get the algorithm wrong. Those people tend to be very dull. I don't think this is controversial. I think we can all agree on that. Those teachers focus too much on the vocabulary of this thing that is really a way of representing the world. Instead of the language, these kinds of teachers focus too much on the letters themselves, the spelling and the syntax. They drill you with vocabulary. They focus on the script and not the sounds. Not enough on the beauty and the beautiful meaning that that language can convey. Footnote number four. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has been incredibly impactful in pop culture. I do have mixed feelings about the book. I remember at times thinking, ah, this is actually pretty funny, pretty insightful. There's some philosophical things in here. At times, I just found it to delve too much into sci-fi minutia, and I stopped caring. My eyes glazed over. But there are a lot of really great parts. So... Highly recommend you listen to the audiobook. I'll link to it in the show notes. I found out that it actually was created as a radio program in the beginning, which I did not know. I thought it was just 
a book. And maybe that's why I never wanted to consume it as a book. Maybe I started, I think, when I was in college and I just couldn't get past the first chapter. But when I listened to it, it was more palatable for sure. And I, I was laughing out loud at times. As they sail around on the heart of gold, the ship, there are some really interesting interchanges. <laughs> I love how the guy from Earth, Arthur Dent, the last person besides Trillian, this other human woman who was plucked from Earth by the aliens, that they're the, the only living remnants of the human civilization after Earth gets destroyed. Arthur Dent, this human, is, is always the butt of every joke, which is amazing and expresses the kind of absurdity that Catch-22, Yosarian kind of absurdity all the time that is hilarious. There's a lullaby that Marvin the Paranoid Android sings to himself where he talks about counting electric sheep, which we talked about Blade Runner in a previous episode here. And Marvin has an homage to do androids dream of electric sheep in his lullaby. The Philip K. Dick novel, do androids dream of electric sheep being the inspiration for Blade Runner. Douglas Adams, the author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, talks about, I'm looking at Wikipedia, I think. He talked about how he came up with the idea for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Apparently he was hiking around Europe with a friend who had the Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe and fell asleep drunk looking at the stars and in his semi-lucid state as he drifted off to dreamland, he was thinking how amazing it would be if someone had a Hitchhiker's Guide to space. He, I guess he even forgot about the Genesis until a, friends kept bringing up this story that he had told them in that time about how he came up with the idea think that's pretty amazing it's tempting to think of an author of a great work just sort of thinking really important thoughts and wrestling with the problems of humanity and philosophy instead of just being drunk on a european hillside falling asleep gazing at the stars Footnote number five, I thought that I'd referenced Radiohead somewhere on the podcast previously. I swear I did, but I looked. So, dear listener, if you have gotten enough of Radiohead on previous episodes and I somehow have forgotten, please message me on Instagram and correct my memory. A little more about the album. It was self-produced by the band and Nigel Godrich, who is sometimes jokingly referred to as Radiohead's sixth member that's a reference to the fifth Beatle. Nigel Godridge produced the From the Basement sessions, which I know we have referred to here before. EMI Records originally thought the band was committing suicide. It was their third album, and they lowered their sales projections from what it was originally. Of course, EMI was pleasantly surprised when that was not the case. 
it was recorded in 1996. Mid-recording, the band actually took a break between stints at different studios and some mansion outside of London, presumably, I think. I always, I always presume something is outside of London if it's not in London. In England, uh, obviously, that's, that's not the case. Apparently, in that 1996 break, they opened for Alanis Morissette, which is kind of crazy to believe. I mean, she was a big hit at the time. And even now, I recently somehow stumbled across her, and she had more than a couple good songs, good hits. Uh, and I, I think they kind of stand up. But she was nowhere near she, the sensation that Radiohead has become and enduring over time. So I think it's kind of funny that Radiohead was opening for her. 80% of the album was recorded live with no audio separation, which is unusual. But bands who have talked about doing that and playing it live and recording at the same time have talked a lot about how the interplay of all the members together playing at the same time really produces something special. Not hard to believe. Obviously, before the advent of modern recording, this is how it had to be. But then producers realized they could get better sounds by separating. And I think the technology, talking a lot about technology on this podcast, the technology finally caught up to where humans could be more human. Godrich has a lot of projects and is very prolific. He's also in a band or has got a band called Adams for peace. I confess that I don't know a lot about Adams for peace. I'll have to give them a listen. He talked about mixing and, and the mixing on okay computer. There was a lot of electronica electronica entered rock for the first time through okay computer. Goddard said that he kind of just does half a day to do a mix, which is super interesting. He says if he doesn't keep it fresh and just finish up and be done with it, I'm assuming he's talking about half a day per track. I don't really know per song, but if he does more than that, then he just kills it and it becomes dull. There are an enormous amount of influences. The band basically started with, except for that initial sci-fi commentary, they, they started with the idea that they wanted to bring all of their favorite records into essentially one album of various songs. So there's all sorts of stuff. PJ Harvey, the Beatles, a, a day in the life, essentially along with happiness is a warm gun were both the inspiration for the structure of paranoid Android, which has essentially four separate parts that are all independently amazing, but switch around. There's Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. The list goes on of how those influences became songs that manifested them into new creations, but were also authentic to the originals. To give you another sense for what this album is like and how they created it, there's a lot of societal commentary in it. and. Like I said before, it's not so much about the emotions of an individual, but more about the emotions of any future individual and how technology is a huge risk. And then other technology comes along to help mitigate that risk. That's what the song Airbag is about. 
there's lots of irony between album name, songs, lyrics. In a quote, Tom York said about the lyrics and the meanings of the songs, he says, on this album, the outside world became all there was. I'm just taking Polaroids of things around me moving too fast. Finally, Radiohead's subsequent album was called Kid A. Kid A was the proposed name by Radiohead of what the first human clone would be called. The album was and still is pretty divisive amongst critics and Radiohead fans. But I confess that I was actually wrong about Kid A. I'm not saying it's my favorite album of all time or even my favorite Radiohead album by any means, but I actually appreciate it a lot more now. And I appreciate the meanings of the songs even more now. It's also a very tech futuristic, nerdy sort of album. And apparently I was wrong and Radiohead was right. There are a lot of methods that the band explored that I think are worth exploring within ourselves and within teams in the workplace. The kind of methods that they used to produce Kid A were to use electronics that don't emote. The band really liked the idea of this, especially Tom York, after just being really drained emotionally over the years up until that point. They wanted to create sounds that they could just create quickly and then fire and forget and just loop. They split up in teams with the other team having no idea what the others were doing. Instruments were redefined per member. They had to learn whole new tech instruments, all this gear they bought. They spent time in this mansion just reading manuals for a period, just playing around. Tom York would write lyrics on strips of paper randomly and then just pull them out of a hat to put them to music. Apparently, he also didn't want many guitars and he didn't want to sing. He was tired of being vulnerable and relating himself. Is that kind of depression a feature? I saw a comment on that old guy listening to OK Computer. There's a chat in the YouTube live functionality. So as you watch and listen to OK Computer for the first time or the zillion time with that old guy, you can see the comments in the chat and they're, they're actually uh, really enriching to the experience. One commenter says something like, Radiohead doesn't relate to normal people. So if you're not normal, maybe none of our listeners and your host here are normal, then maybe you'll like Radiohead. Of course, maybe that's just self-serving. Everyone likes to think they're not normal. And if you like Radiohead, you like to think it's for a reason that is maybe higher than yourself or whatever band or artist that you really like. There's a song called Idiotech on Kid A, which is an amazing song. And I heard it again for the first time when I listened to a version by someone named Alexa Mello. She's got a heavy presence on YouTube and 
she's got an amazing video of her playing. I think it's all acoustic, almost all acoustic, but she plays every part of that song. And it's a pretty complex song, maybe not in a music theory sense, but at least in terms of all the contributing instruments and parts. And her voice is amazing. It's an incredibly beautiful and powerful version of a song that is not necessarily a light song, but it is simply amazing. Kid A and Idiotech, they talk a lot about tech isolations, the quandaries of power that technology gives us and the vulnerability that we have due to technology. We celebrate advances that only protect us sometimes from the harm that earlier tech created in the first place. Now, I'm not a Luddite by any means, but this should give us pause. It also is pretty interesting that there's OK Computer and credit goes to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but in OK Computer and Kid A, there's a direct relation and prediction to what life is really like, especially now in quarantine with Zoom fatigue and remote work and us saying, okay, Google and hey, Siri, or hey, Siri and okay, Google, whatever it is. It is amazing though how life imitates art because that was back in the late 1990s, way before even the iPhone came out. But then... Maybe by predicting the future, Douglas Adams and Radiohead created it. There's the saying, the best way to predict the future is to create it. When maybe in reality, the best way to create the future is to predict it. Rainiac Productions. The Warrior Poet is produced by Laddie, with special contributions by Spoonman and me, Shree. No, 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 no. Kevin, me na do it. Speed up.